Hey everyone, uh, my name is Ian Ward, and I'm going to talk today about uh, how Mapbox uses the AWS Edge to deliver fast maps for mobile cars and web users around the world. So that's uh, yeah a little bit about me first. Actually, um, I work at Mapbox on the engineering team. I'm on the, actually the platform team and the uh, security team, and been there since Mapbox started. And before Mapbox, I worked at the company within which Mapbox was bootstrapped. Uh, all in all, I've been working in site reliability and security for the past 13 years or so. Uh, there are actually 15, I think 15 people now from Mapbox at reInvent, and we have a booth. Uh, so I encourage you to come by the booth. We love hearing about how other people are using AWS, and we like sharing as well. So come on by. Uh, we're excited to talk. Uh, so a little bit about this talk. Uh, that title was really long. Um, what is the talk actually about? Uh, so we use CloudFront, Reality 3, and the AWS WAF uh, quite a bit. And the talk is really about not just like not how we like configure every single detail about uh, these services, but more about how we think about their use, how we analyze and reanalyze uh, how we're using them. Uh, and uh, in order to like move our business forward and also do it in a way that's uh, improving reliability uh, and performance and just uh, very uh, being efficient about cost. So first I'll give some context about what Mapbox actually is uh, because some of that is important about uh, what I'll later talk about. And then I'll talk a bit about cost and performance and then configuration kind of briefly and then operations, but the operations section is going to touch on some of the things I touch on in the other two sections. And then at the end, I'll talk about security and specifically the AWS WAF and uh, how we're using it. So first of all, what is Mapbox? Mapbox is a, a mapping platform for other businesses as well as developers. Um, it allows uh, you to, we have basically building blocks to let you build a location-based application. Or maybe you have an application you need like a location uh, component in it. So we offer a lot of different uh, APIs to make that possible. We can go through some examples here. This is uh, foursquare.com. So they're a social networking site. They've been around for a, a long time. If you look at their site, um, it's, it's a, you use it to like find, uh, find a place to grab a drink or a meal with friends. And if you look at their site, their site wouldn't really exist without a map. It's a big component of it. So these are map tiles that you're looking at uh, with points of interest on them. And then uh, this is... Uh, the Weather Channel's uh, mobile app. Uh, so the weather company, where they're mapping the atmosphere, they use Mapbox's base map upon which to map the atmosphere. And, and this is uh, Square, so if you make a payment with Square, you can get the receipt on your mobile uh, phone, and they have a map component in there, and it's kind of like, you could think of it maybe one way to think of it as a security feature. It shows where you made that purchase. And so there are over 5,000 different platforms that are using uh, Mapbox in different ways. And they're um, all, all over the world, uh, big companies and small companies. So first, it all starts with uh, design, design and data tools. We have a, a flagship web application called Mapbox Studio. And this is at mapbox.com studio. And it lets you uh, build a very uh, custom-looking map, uh, upload data, and style that map according to like, what's actually in the data uh, so you can make it look um, exactly the way you want it to and, and how you need it to to match your application. So we have a bunch of APIs and SDKs that you can use to access those APIs. So we have a JavaScript, a, a JavaScript SDK. 
We have a Python SDK, mobile SDKs for Android, and iOS, and a few others. So let's look at some API requests. These are going to come up later. Uh, this is a, a map tile. So those tiles that you saw on the foursquare.com site, and it, uh, this is an example of one of those tiles. This is zoom level zero. So you're looking at like a 256 pixel by 256 pixel image. This is a raster image. We also have vector tiles, which are uh, tiles that are rendered on the client side. So in this case, um, the average size of a tile like this is like eight kilobytes to, to 25 kilobytes. Kind of varies depending on detail or what features are actually in the tile. And I'll bring up why that's important later. So if you zoom in, uh, each time you zoom in uh, a zoom level, uh, one tile turns into four tiles. And this just keeps going. So by the time you're at zoom level 17, you've got 17 billion tiles. Now looking at uh, another example API is geocoding. So this is the, where you put in like, say, you know, I'm in Las Vegas. It will return back what the longitude is of Las Vegas, or you can do the reverse. Say you have a, you're building a mobile app and uh, you want to uh, know, where, know where you actually are. You can send the latitude and longitude to the API, and it will return back where you actually are, the, uh, the point of interest or the place name. And here's another example. Oh, yeah, those requests are an average of three kilobytes uh, on response. And then directions. Uh, this is turn-by-turn -turn directions. So pro provide a starting point and ending point, and you get back turn-by-turn uh, -turn directions. Something that we're really pushing on uh, recently is Mapbox Drive. So this is the idea of not just providing those directions, but also feeding in real-time traffic information and influencing the, the directions that you get back based on things like real-time traffic. So we have a lot of other APIs as well. Uh, you can check them out on the, on the site. Uh, and the, yeah, the idea is they just are, are a, a tool set to, to build the location application that you need to build. All of these uh, APIs, something similar uh, with all of them is they have an access token uh, that needs to be passed in in the query string. So this access token is used for uh, authentication, making sure you're allowed to make that request, and also things like rate limiting. So I'm going to bring up why this is important a bit later. It's just a, a JSON web token. And yeah, so a little bit about our traffic. Our API, uh, our API traffic is global. Our customers are, are all around the world. Their users are all around the world. So um, this is an idea like uh, our mobile SDK actually sends back anonymous um, probe information about uh, traffic conditions. Uh, and so like, this is just a couple of days of like probe information coming back uh, to our endpoints. And for a couple of days, we have 95% road coverage. This is several months ago, so I think it's uh, different now. But this, this, is, this is the type of coverage basically showing where are the users of our SDK are in the world, and it's similar in a lot of other uh, major cities. So based on that, where is our infrastructure? Our infrastructure is global. We're running in, so the small dots here are, are CloudFront. And there are a few missing there. They've added a, a bunch of regions actually recently. And then the larger dots are where our origins are running. We're running, running in six to nine origins, depending on the, uh, the actual the API. And we have over 200 million monthly active users. And we're doing billions of requests a day. So, you know, like the, those tiles I showed you, there's a lot of tiles that make up the world. And so, you know, you, you go to a site like foursquare.com or another site that consists of a, a map on the, on the web app. And it, it loads a lot of tiles. So we just end up doing a lot of requests. So let's get into a little bit about cost and performance, how we think about that. Uh, we started in US East 1 uh, when we first started just in, in one region. But something that we started with was CloudFront right from the very beginning. It was very easy to turn on. 
and there were immediate uh, performance and cost benefits to doing that. Uh, it's, it's something that you can definitely tune over time, but we just uh, started using it right away. And here's a picture of what our origin looks like. So the requests come in for the client, and they hit Route 53, so they hit like api.mapbox.com. And from there, they'll be routed to the nearest um, CloudFront Edge location. And from there, they'll then go to, we use Route 53's latency-based routing. So they'll go to one of the nine regions based on whatever is least latent from uh, that location. And then from there, they'll hit uh, the actual region, and there's an elastic load balancer. And then they'll hit our application servers, which are running on EC2, and now we're using ECS uh, service and tasks. And those will make uh, look-aside cache lookups. We're running Redis on EC2 on the spot market. And from there, we also make uh, database requests at DynamoDB. And then to uh, S3, we have a lot of our uh, geographic like raw data stored in S3. And a lot of that data actually comes from OpenStreetMap. So if you go to openstreetmap.org, you can sign up. Anybody can create an account there and edit uh, data uh, on this like global base map. And we have uh, a pipeline that we pull in these changes. So let's look at uh, some of our headers here, some of our response headers. Uh, you can see we have uh, cache control headers. We have a max age of 12 hours and an S-max age of seven days in this example request here. This is for a satellite tile. And uh, you can also see a couple other things. We have an e-tag set and the last modified uh, header set. So let's talk about that uh, cache control header setting. So why do we use both a max age and an S-max age? Well, as I said, like a lot of the data in the base map is coming from OpenStreetMap. So we have like... Um, systems that try to detect things like um, validation errors or vandalism. Sometimes since it's an open community, someone can come in and vandalize the map, or maybe there's just an error that's made. If that somehow sneaks in through our, our validation systems and gets onto the map, we don't want that uh, object to sit in somebody's browser forever for a very long time, right? So we have a lower uh, max age. And then the S max age is actually uh, what CloudFront will use. If you, send, if you set both of these headers, CloudFront will honor the S max age. So it's the shared cache age. And CloudFront has an invalidation API, and we've had to use that API sometimes in the past. And you know, even for clearing like millions of objects that are in the cache, it's effective at doing that. So uh, that's why we're able to set uh, such a longer um, SMAX age, and that leads to a much longer, uh, a much better cache hit rate. And I'll talk about how we look at those cache hit rates in a bit. So let's just look at an example here. This is an example of a 1 million requests. Say you have an average uh, tile, like an average tile size of um, 8 kilobytes. If you run one EC2, say you do these 1 million requests in 24 hours, you run one EC2, an M3X large. If you've got an email, ELB, you have to run a, maybe a database server. We use DynamoDB, but this, in this example, I simplified it. Uh, so RDS, you run for 24 hours. Uh, it's an R3. And then you have to like do also pay for the requests on the edge. So they go through the edge, the data transfer. All that uh, to do one million requests is $17. If you compare that to if you had a 100% cache hit rate, it would, it would be just $3. So that's, like, that's an, an astonishing difference. It's also very difficult to reach a 100% uh, cache hit rate, um, especially like with what we're dealing with, with um, billions of tiles. There's a long tail of content. And CloudFront uses an LRU to determine like what sits in the cache. You know, if, even if you set like a seven-day SMAX age, uh, that object may not sit in there for seven days if, if nobody's requesting it. So, but but the, the closer you can get to that, um, the closer you're getting to a savings 
at, at something like this rate. So if you look back at what our origin actually looks like, it's pretty expensive. It's, it's, it's really expensive compared to, to CloudFront. So this is why we pay very uh, close attention to our content and also to like how cash hit rates are behaving. And I'll look at, uh, touch on a little bit more about how much in detail we look at that in a bit. So getting the cache, uh, caching headers right is also um, very important for performance. So if you look at, like, uh, we've looked at like, the average um, time taken. So CloudFront, uh, they provide access logs. And one of the fields they have in those access, log access logs is the time taken uh, number. And seeing, like, definitely single-digit uh, latency on cache hits on many edges and maybe on average around 12 milliseconds looking at a, a small sample uh, from a, a given day. But if you compare that, compare that to a cache miss, uh, like what that, what that uh, request has to do, if it has to go through to the origin, there's latency from the edge to the origin, and then there's latency in the origin. So we have like lots of caches. We have application caches. We have caches like the look-aside Redis cache. Uh, but if it has to go all the way through there, you're looking at a much worse performance. This is an example. Um, our APIs are, are all a little bit different in, in how they perform. But yeah, the miss is just, I mean, the ha this hit here is 96% faster than a miss, and this is an actual example. So another thing is conditional requests. Uh, this is something that we didn't definitely didn't start off with uh, right away when we started uh, Mapbox and we started using CloudFront and ha set up our origin. But uh, conditional requests are the idea that, uh, so somebody's got this object cached in their browser, and uh, the object is expired, okay? But the person goes maybe the next day, and they're going to go look at the same place on the map, and they want to load that. And uh, the browser is going to make a request to CloudFront. And they're going to say, hey, I got this object. It's expired. But do you have the object? And is what I have like actually the latest copy? And so that's a conditional get. And uh, so if you think about like what happens there, if, if, you have, if you're set up to handle this properly by setting these headers, having like an e-tag or a last modified uh, date on your, on your content, then CloudFront can handle that. Um, if you don't, then uh, you're going to have to serve a 200. Um, so the thing is that if you do a conditional get, CloudFront will, and it's successful, CloudFront will return not the entire tile back, the map tile, or whatever it is that the content is, it will just return the headers back and say, hey, you're good. Keep what you have and show it in the browser. And this is not just between, um, not just between the client and CloudFront, but it's also between CloudFront and the origin. And this is also uh, actually where we saw the most impact when we made adjustments here. But uh, CloudFront can also have the object in its cache. It could be expired. Um, but if you have these headers set properly, CloudFront can go make a conditional get back to your origin and say the same thing, have the same conversation, and it will, uh, your origin can send back just the uh, response headers, no data actually in the body. And that's a, that's a remarkable savings in terms of transfer costs and, and maybe even commute, compute costs, depending on how your, your origin is set up. Maybe you don't have to do like all the full compute. So what does it look like? I actually re-ran this number 45 minutes ago because it was kind of like didn't pass my blink test here. Like it didn't look right. But um, I'm looking at just 1 billion conditional gets. If you do a billion conditional gets, if you're just doing, if you're doing like all those uh, and handling successfully as like um, not modified, like conditional get 304 responses, it's just 50, $54 in transfer costs using CloudFront's uh, market rate on their, on their website, the pricing that they advertise. But if you have to do uh, all 200s, 
you're looking at $2,125. It's a huge difference. So getting these set uh, right is definitely worthwhile as you start to do more traffic. So some takeaways about this section are, um, yeah, definitely like uh, we used this, uh, the CDM from the start. Uh, there were clear advantages to doing that. It didn't have a lot of overhead to configure it. Um, but then like, you know, knowing your content, uh, knowing what you need to, what types of cache headers you can, you can set based on uh, what the risks are is important, and then tuning over time. So, you know, that conditional get uh, handling wasn't something I think that we did, uh, hit until a couple of years after launching the API. But once we hit it, it was, it was super important and definitely goes into how we price things for our service. So a little bit about configuration now. Uh, we have uh, now, we started off with just one, one or two behaviors. We just had one API. We just did maps in the beginning. Now we have a lot of different APIs. We have like uh, about 13 different origins. Uh, so we've got directions origin, we've got a geocoding origin, maps origin, and so on. And sometimes these are actually different teams. They're like different teams at Mapbox who manage uh, those origins. And uh, the thing is that these are, so these are CloudFront behaviors. Uh, behavior in CloudFront is what is basically, it's like the router. It says, okay, if, if this request has slash directions in it, send it to the directions origin. So it's, it's really important to uh, get the, the order of the, beha the behaviors uh, correct. So if you have like a less, uh, a less specific uh, match uh, above a more specific match, traffic will never make it to that more specific match. So it's super important that they're in the correct order. So how do you, yeah, one of the questions is like, if you have a bunch of teams and how do you manage this router together? And then not only that, but they're also like, as you add a behavior here, there are a lot of different options. It's, you know, CloudFront is pretty flexible. Gives you a lot to work with. Uh, if you look at the last one there, it's about uh, whether or not to forward the query string. So if you remember, uh, I said all of our API requests require an access token, and that access token is actually in the query string. So if somebody sets up a behavior and they don't set this, you know, check this box or like flip a select to use uh, passing, the uh, passing the query string back to the origin, then it won't work right. So how do you do this uh, when the options matter and the, and the order the order matters? Well, we are. Uh, does everybody use or has heard of or knows about CloudFormation? So yeah, CloudFormation. Yeah, it's pretty popular. CloudFormation. Uh, just to quick, quickly summarize it, it's uh, lets you like write a JSON template, and instead of like going and clicking through the console, the web console to create all of your resources in AWS, you can define them all in a JSON template. It just says okay. You can define like an auto-scaling group, um, or some EC2s, or a policies. You can even define uh, a CloudFront distribution. So our CloudFront distribution is in a CloudFormation template. And what's, what this allows us to do is commit that configuration to a GitHub repository. And then we can use uh, things like Travis or CircleCI, some other um, integration testing. So whenever somebody makes, uh, so say we create, we're creating a new API, and somebody uh, goes in and adds that uh, configuration into the CloudFormation template, like the, the additional behavior into the CloudFront uh, configuration in that CloudFormation template. If they don't uh, define to pass back the query string, it will fail the, the tests. So this is a way to kind of like allow a bunch of teams to manage this configuration together. So yeah, some takeaways about this are, yeah, CloudFront just has, there's a lot of options. Uh, it's about, I think, finding ways to manage that complexity. Uh, some, some things are like, 
even though you can configure uh, cache control headers in the actual B, uh, the behavior, uh, you can also set those on your origin. So that's one way. Another way is doing things like testing the actual distribution configuration by using CloudFormation. So now let's get into operations. A lot of what I just talked about is going to come up in different ways in these next two sections. Uh, so we're, uh, some of our origins are in nine regions, nine different regions. And the way we do this is we use Amazon uh, Route 53 latency-based routing with uh, failover. And so like, like I was saying, we use CloudFormation for pretty much everything. And so with a, say, like the GeoCoder or API or like the Directions API, each of these uh, APIs, each of these origins will have its own separate, what we call a service stack. So we define all the resources for the GeoCoder stack in a CloudFormation template. And that'll be like uh, uh, maybe a auto-scaling group, maybe uh, some tasks, a service for ECS. All this is actually in the CloudFormation template. And we use uh, some of CloudFormation's features that uh, let you do deploys, so like cycling instances. We use some of these features in CloudFormation to basically do all of our deployment through, through the CloudFormation API. And so with our DNS records, we'll have like a, you know, this is the map, like example of the, the map stack. So we'll have like this map service stack, but then we'll have a DNS stack, which is like just the DNS entries and the Route 53 health check uh, definitions in a CloudFormation template. And we call that the DNS stack. So these records look like they're all identical and they just, the only thing that's differing about them in there is the, the region that they're in. And so like what could go wrong, right? The reason why we're running in nine regions is not just for performance, but it's also for reliability. Uh, but like, yeah, just because you're running in nine regions doesn't mean nothing's gonna go wrong. It means more stuff is gonna go wrong because you have more, you know, more surface area, more stuff deployed and more uh, probability that something will go wrong. Um, but it's definitely better than something going wrong if you're just in one region. So what kinds of things go wrong? Sometimes it's self-conflicted, like you have a bad deploy. Uh, or maybe like your deployment uh, code, some, somehow there's a bug in it or something happens and you lose all the capacity in a region. Or maybe it's just that a, a region is having like a intermittent uh, internet uh, network issues. So say like there's actually an issue happening in uh, U-West 1, so in Ireland. Say there's like an internet, internet outage uh, and what will happen in our situation here is like the, the maps API, it will, the, the Route through health checks, they're checking to see like if the string mapbox, for example, exists on each of the different endpoints in each region. And so maybe this uh, packet loss is happening in Ireland causes it to fail over. So like the, the traffic fails automatically and it goes to uh, US East, so to Virginia, right? And then uh, but the packet loss is such that it's like not so horrible and the Route 53 health checkers say, oh, it's looking like it's healthy again. So the traffic goes back. But actually it's not healthy, it's just like intermittent packet loss. So we have like elevated errors, uh, error rates go up again. And then it goes back and forth and back and forth uh, until whatever the problem is uh, gets fixed. And these can last, um, you know, it doesn't happen every month, but it's, it's happened and uh, they can happen and, and, and last for hours. So yeah, uh, automatic failover is not always such. Uh, it doesn't always stick the landing uh, the way you want it to. So the other thing is that manual failover is error prone. So, so a few of the ways we've dealt with this before is that we'll, you know, one way is to, to go into the console and manually delete the, the, the record for EU West 1, the DNS record for the maps endpoint. But like, you know, 
that's error prone. You could go in there and actually delete the wrong region, and you have two problems. Uh, and then another thing is that we've tried, um, we have a, a command line tools that we use to, to interact with uh, the AWS APIs, uh, and I'll get in, into that in a bit. Uh, but we had like a separate, um, we have like basically one, uh, one command line system that we use to, in, to interact with CloudFormation. Um, but we built something kind of like outside of this. And so everyone's familiar with this one tool, but we have this like, uh, you know, if you want to do manual failover through this command line tool, you can use this other tool. And, you know, even though it had some tests with it and everything, nobody was comfortable with, whenever it came to do the failover, no one was really comfortable with, okay, is this actually going to work if I run this command? And the interface was kind of different. Um, so, yeah, uh, how do you do automated manual failover well? Well, like I said, uh, we do a lot with CloudFormation. There's this open source tool we have called cfnconfig. It's in our GitHub repository. It's mapbox, uh, github.com slash mapbox slash cfnconfig. And what this is, it's a command line tool written in Node.js, and it's uh, essentially a, a wrapper around the CloudFormation APIs. So you can create, update, delete stacks uh, all from the command line. Um, just install it with Node.js. And so uh, to like update the geocoder stack, you would do cfnconfig update geocoder production. And this would like, you know, update the actual geocoder EC2s, uh, autoscaling group, whatever it is that's, that's in that stack. But then, okay, so what about failover? We were talking about failover. We've actually, um, as I said, like we had all, all of our, our DNS records also in a separate DNS stack, which is just the records and then the health, the reactive three health checks. So what you can do now is you can go and run cfnconfig update dash dash DNS on the geocoder stack, and it will take you through these prompts. These prompts are actually based on the CloudFormation parameters that are in the template, and it'll say, okay, should I route traffic to US East 1? Yes. You go through until you get to EU West 1. You say no. It will update the CloudFormation stack. And by doing that, there's actually just a, condi a condition in this template, and it says, okay, if somebody sets this to no, tell the health checker in that region to check for failed. And failed doesn't exist. We don't serve that on our endpoint. So after a minute and a half, uh, Route 3 will fail that. But it's great because it's the same interface that anyone uses. Like everyone uses this interface every day to create um, testing stacks, staging stacks. And so when, when you're like a high stress point where you need to do a manual failover, you use the same interface. Uh, and this, this, this has worked, uh, just, it just feels natural. Yeah, so the next question is, did it actually work? Uh, did the failover work? Uh, when did it kick in? And this is uh, uh, another thing we've done. Uh, it's a tool. It's just, just basically looking at the different places in the console that shows, like, okay, uh, is the, what is the region, like, what is the, in what all regions is this stack configured to run? And, like, in all of those regions, what is the current uh, health uh, of those of those regions, is it configured to be healthy? Is it like, or is it configured to be failed over? And then, if it is, you can see if it is configured to be failed over, you can see if it's actually failed over yet. So instead of you know, you basically when you're in this high stress moment of wanting to fail this region, you don't want to be like bouncing around to different um, consoles and whatnot. You want to just do it all in the command line, or all in one in one spot, right? And this is how you, how you can do it. So uh, other ways to check status. Uh, other things we do to look at our traffic on a, on a hourly or daily basis, uh, we take all of our CloudFront logs, 
and we put them in an Amazon Redshift cluster. So we have like billions of requests a day, and so we have billions of, of logs. This is why we put them in Redshift. But you could, if you have less uh, or the same, if you have the same, I would put them in Redshift. If you have less, maybe you want to put them in some other type of relational database. But Amazon uh, Redshift is really convenient. I'll show you why. So the log files, uh, CloudFront delivers those to, uh, to S3, just as uh, compressed log files. And then we have a Lambda that's just running. And whenever those files are delivered, whenever so there's enough of them, uh, this Lambda builds a manifest file. And all that is is a list of these files. And the reason why we do that is because um, we have this other EC2 that runs. And it waits for these manifest files to be re-delivered onto S3 by the Lambda. And the EC2 takes this manifest file. And um, Amazon Redshift, it supports uh, doing this, this copy command. You can actually copy directly from uh, files in S3 into Redshift. There's some great blog posts on the internet about how to do this. Um, but yeah, the, the idea is that you do this copy command and uh, the, all the log file contents will get copied into your Redshift cluster. So once those logs are in there, what do we do? Uh, SQL, I've been using it since I first started programming. It's super powerful. I still love it today. Um, it's, it's an old language. It's an old, uh, yeah, but it's great. So like, uh, you can look at the CloudFront uh, documentation, see what all the fields are in the access logs, but it's similar to like any other uh, web server. There's some more additional things in there that are like the XEdge result type. Uh, this is actually, was it a cache hit or a miss? So we're looking here at, okay, was it a cache hit or miss? What's our, basically looking at what's our uh, cache hit rate? I'm grouping by cache hit rate here. So I can see the hits, misses, refresh hits. Uh, for, and we have this CloudFront log staging table. So we keep like 48 hours of logs in this Redshift cluster. You can still query that pretty quickly with, uh, with Redshift, but we also have this staging table, which is just one hour of logs. It's the last hour of logs. And so this is, it's like, it gives you a big enough, uh, enough logs to do a quick sample, and it's super fast queries. So other things we can do is like, if you have the customer name, if that's part of your URL, or maybe it's the access token, you can do things like, okay, group all the traffic right now by customer. Sometimes we have like these big spikes on the edge. And maybe the spike is on the edge of like a increase in traffic, but it doesn't make it to the origin. And if you don't have a way to like look at what's going on, you're just like, you know, I hope it's legitimate traffic. I, I'm not, I'm not sure, but so this is why it's like great to have this at our fingertips. Um, so like if you combine, for example, the, the, the last thing I just showed you there, the, the, the hit rate or like the actual, like the edge status, so the result type, whether there's a hit or a miss, combine that with a customer, you can start to look at, okay, is this customer, if you think about like the cost stuff I talked about before, you can start to think about, okay, is this customer costing us a lot of money compared to other customers? And you can start to make business decisions about um, maybe there are certain types of customers and they're, they have certain type of traffic, which is more costly to serve than other customers. And you can start to help like uh, the business team influence um, how they think about um, how they should be selling uh, the product. Maybe, uh, you know, not all traffic is the same. Not all customers are the same. So you want to, like, look at this and really look at it in detail and understand um, before uh, going out and getting into a negotiation of, like, a, uh, of some new traffic, understanding, like, what that traffic actually actually is. So this, 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 lets, uh, this makes it really possible to look at that. Other things are maybe we have, like, a, a, an incident. Maybe we're losing origin. Or maybe there's like some people in a part of Europe that are complaining about uh, certain like uh, elevated error rate. So we could do this. We could look at okay, let's look at uh, the status codes organized by edge location. 
And let's just look at where the status is like five something something. So like all the 500s. And we can see, okay, we, we have this like failover in US one. What was like the um, error rates in all the different edges, for example, just to look at kind of like the blast radius of that, of that problem. And that can help us communicate on our status page, for example, about, yeah, we, we had this problem here, or like these edges have this problem, and this is what the total error rate looked like in the different locations. So yeah, some, some thoughts here about this <clears throat> this section is, uh, yeah, tooling for your manual processes, it makes a lot of sense. And just like, instead of, you know, if we have like 13 different teams in Mapbox, instead of having like 13 different command line interfaces to do similar or the same thing, putting it all into one that you can manage together makes a lot of sense. Uh, and you can really get a better honed product that way. And then just learning from your logs. There's a ton to learn from your logs, whether it's uh, for operational purposes, whether it's for business purposes. There's a ton of uh, interesting information in there that can help guide you. Uh, and then, so now security. Uh, now that we've talked about logs here, specifically with security, I want to talk about scraping and DDoS. So scraping, if you think about like the, the world, it's a very discrete thing. It's, uh, uh, as I said, like Zoom level 17 is 17 billion tiles. And so we often see like maybe it's somebody who's trying to start the next Mapbox using our IP, or maybe it's a customer, somebody who should be a customer, but they're just trying to like steal, or steal the tiles. They write a scraper, something that's gonna go and like serially copy, try and download the entire world or a certain Zoom level or something, right? Uh, and so that's a, that's a scraper, and sometimes it looks like a DDoS because sometimes it's done through uh, data centers with hundreds of IP addresses. And what I was talking about there about like having our logs uh, in, in Redshift, being able to kind of like really see and look and understand your content, it's important uh, to be able to fingerprint what your, what bad traffic looks like. So like you need to know what your content, like what normal traffic looks like to know whether the traffic might be bad. So what can we look at? These aren't all of our secrets, um, but you know, if you see a lot of traffic coming from a single IP address, that's a pretty good giveaway. Uh, but then we have like enterprise customers that we allow to proxy to us, for example. So how do we distinguish between that that traffic and like a, a scraper? There's other things, uh, yeah, so is it like an unknown proxy? Um, other things are like maybe all this traffic is coming from a single IP address and it's got like just one user agent. Often like people don't go through the steps of making the user agent something that changes uh, so like the user agent will be from like Java or like liburl or Python. And so you're like, hmm, that, you know, that, that looks suspicious. Uh, and then other things like irregular content profile. Like as I, as I said, like um, the average uh, tile size for a map tile is like between eight and, and 25 kilobytes. But sometimes we, we see people doing like lots of requests for ocean tiles or lots of requests for land tiles, just blank tiles. And these tiles, these are like uh, 100 bytes each. So if we see, uh, for example, somebody doing a bunch of traffic from a single or like maybe just a few hundred IP addresses and like their average uh, content size is something like under, under a kilobyte, that's kind of, that's kind of weird looking. Uh, so that helps us uh, make decisions about whether that traffic is legitimate or not. So, this is where the, uh, the AWS WAF comes into play for us. Um, it's a web application firewall. It's very flexible, has a lot of options. It looks like this uh, in terms of like where it fits in into your, 
into your architecture. You've got good users, bad users just coming in from wherever. And the traffic goes through the WAF first. And then from there, it goes onto CloudFront and then onto your origins. And the whole idea is to prevent uh, any unwanted traffic from ever making it back to CloudFront even and back to your origin. So there's a lot of different ways you can block traffic in, in the WAF. You can do it by um, whether something matches in the, in the headers. Maybe you can look at the, the user agent and be like, yeah, if the user agent is Python, block that. Um, but you have to, the question is kind of like, how do you, you might have customers that are allowed to proxy and allowed to use like scraping based on whatever deal you have with them. So you kind of like, you have to differentiate there. Um, but then the, the other question is like, how do you update? So how do you update the WAF? If you thought like, I mean, I, I thought like failing out a region was kind of a high stress thing, uh, tedious, but then the, the WAF, it's very flexible, it has a lot of options. And you go into the WAF and you're like, you know, looking at all the different options and like trying to figure out, okay, I've got this scraper going and, and, and it's starting to take down this region because of the amount of traffic it's doing. Uh, or it's like costing us a lot of money uh, or it's like, you know, scraping or abusing somebody's um, website. Making a quick decision could end up blocking like all your traffic. So how do you manage this? Well, same thing. We put it in CloudFormation. Our, our WAF configuration is in a CloudFormation template. But like CloudFormation templates are kind of static, right? It's just like a JSON template. But say um, one of the most reliable ways we find we found to block is by IP address because it's very difficult to spoof uh, an IP address. Whereas you can easily spoof uh, other things in the request, like the user agent uh, and so on. So something I really love about CFN Config is that it can actually not just like take a CloudFormation template and, and upload it to the API. But that CloudFormation template could be just JSON or it could be JavaScript. So if you look here, this is a, a JavaScript CloudFormation template. Uh, and it's just including uh, this IPs variable and it's calling libips.js. And what all that does is, this is all in a, in a GitHub repo. All that does is it looks at a text file like a list of IP addresses. And based on what it finds in there, it will explode it later down on line 12 there. You can see, okay, the IP set descriptor, this is supposed to be a long list of IP addresses or a short list, whatever IPs you want to block, right? If you have to go in there and update this by hand uh, on the fly as you're trying to block this traffic, it's, gonna, it's not gonna work. So you just do CFN config update on this WAF template and it will look at this list of IP addresses in this text file which is all version controlled. So we can see what we were blocking, what we're about to block. When you run CFN update, it's gonna show you a diff of what it's about to change uh, in the CloudFormation configuration. So it, uh, it manages all this complexity for you and, and builds this template on the fly. And we've seen this effective, like the WAF, uh, what's gonna happen here actually is the WAF, uh, when you run CFN config update, it's gonna upload it to CloudFormation. And CloudFormation is gonna go on and reconfigure the WAF for you. So you don't even, nobody has to ever even go into the WAF console and do any clicking or anything. Uh, you're, gonna block, you're gonna always block in a um, known expected way, uh, no matter who's doing it on the team, at, at what time of day, uh, under whatever circumstances. It's gonna be a, a similar workflow, uh, not, not as uh, error prone as, as uh, an approach where you'd have to go into the console. So yeah, see if you can config, uh, 
it's written in Node.js, but like that pattern there, it's it's something if you use Java, if you use Python, uh, there are other tools similar to this. It's the idea that you know just because CloudFormation template is has to be JSON doesn't mean you can't uh, write it on the fly with with something like JavaScript. And you can even do things like we haven't we've done this a couple of times. Um, haven't always felt great when we had to do it, but you can do like asynchronous calls too. So maybe you you build this CloudFormation template by maybe at the top there you have some like calls and and you do like an API called AWS and you like make an API call, you get some resources and based on the response you get back, then based on that you build your CloudFormation template. You could even do that if, if it comes to it. Uh, the more common pattern we have is just writing it in JavaScript and doing things like looking up um, from other libraries that are static that we built and building out the CloudFormation template that, template that way. Yeah, so we found the WAF effective at blocking attacks that are coming from single computers trying to download the whole world, which would take a really long time. Also data centers, hundreds of IP addresses coming from uh, major uh, major data centers around the world. Uh, the WAF has uh, been effective in blocking in, in all those situations. Yeah, so some, some key points about this uh, are just uh, having, uh, knowing your content, being familiar with it, to know what, what is good and what is bad, and then having um, having your logs, like the CloudFront logs, in a, in a place uh, that you can use for lots of different purposes, uh, whether it's on the business side, whether it's for day-to-day -day operations, uh, trying to tune uh, performance and tune maybe the origin and how well it's caching, getting your cache headers right, uh, all the way to security and WAF, uh, having those logs in an accessible place. Uh, we've been in the spot where these logs weren't accessible, and uh, you kind of just are left sitting there um, with not many options. But having them in a place where you can query them on the fly is super, super helpful. And then just, yeah, just being, uh, specifically with the WAF, just being familiar what your options are to block, uh, knowing what's going to be most reliable, what you can and can't do, and then building something, uh, something around like automating, being able to do that. Yeah, so uh, just to conclude here, that the talk, you know, wasn't really about like how we configure every single thing about all these edge services. It's more about how we think about them, how we use them on a day-to-day -day basis, and how we distribute that, how to how to distribute that across uh, the whole team, uh, in terms of like making everyone own that and manage that themselves, and how uh, how you're using them and the uh, the information you can get from them can help to influence uh, other teams, uh, you know, not just uh, the platform team, for example, but uh, the business team or the security team uh, at your company. Uh, so yeah, any uh, if anyone has any questions, uh, I can. Take those, those now.